0: My name is Evan White, and you're listening to the Stories on Stage Davis podcast. I'm pleased to say that this week's episode sees the return of writer Peter Orner, who first appeared at our series in 2013. He has won three Pushcart Prizes, and his work has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and Best American Short Stories. He teaches at Dartmouth College. We'll be hearing the story, Ineffectual Tribute to Len, from Orner's latest collection, Maggie Brown and others. Reading Ineffectual Tribute to Len is Chad Fisk, who has appeared on stage throughout the Bay Area, as well as on episodes of Grey's Anatomy. Stay tuned after the reading to hear Peter Orner on the inspiration behind his story. But first, here's Chad Fisk reading Ineffectual Tribute
1: After graduate school, I hung around another year and drove a cab for Iowa City Yellow Cab. The cab was a boat, a Chevrolet Caprice wagon. I could have put a mattress in the back and lived in it. I didn't hate the job. I'd sit in the Kroger parking lot and read. If the dispatcher radioed and I liked the sound of the call, I took it. If I didn't, I went on reading. My indifference didn't make me popular with Ovid Demineris. I once asked him over the radio if he'd ever read Ovid, and he said he didn't answer personal questions. He's got some real smutty stuff, I said. Dead air. I didn't have to drive a cab. I was broke, and the only money I had was the play money left over from my student loans. Now I can't pay them off with real money. Still, I wasn't a cab driver. I was a grad student an ex-grad student, pretending. I'd sit in the parking lot and read. Occasionally, I'd drive somewhere, pick up somebody, and then drive them somewhere else. In front of the Deadwood one late night, 2.30 a.m., I earned a few chops picking up blitzed undergrads. One of them puked in the back of the cab. I hit the brakes and ordered them all the fuck out. But it's fucking February, man. It's fucking Iowa. Out! Out! That made me feel like a cabbie. And I used to take calls out to an encampment along the river west of town. People there didn't live in tents or refrigerator boxes, but in full-on shacks constructed of scrap wood and sometimes even a few bricks. It was a small, functioning village, nearly impossible to find. It wasn't on any map. You had to bumble along a series of ruddy dirt roads south, then head north again before you could go west that close to the river. It may have been a derelict property, or maybe it was a kind of no-man's land in a flood zone. Ovid would put out a general call. Anybody want to pick up some ancient freak out by the river? If nobody took it, he'd re-cue his mic and say, Ornery, how about getting off your pampered ass? The freaks weren't that ancient, maybe in their mid-fifties, but most of them had lived so many years outdoors in Iowa. Their faces were perpetually red from frostbite. In winter, the tall bare trees hid nothing and blocked no wind. I'd trek out there and stop in the center of that scattering of hunkered, makeshift houses and wait to see who jumped into the cab. More often than not, it was a grocery run. A woman who called herself Bertie once squeezed my forearm Bertie always sat in the front seat alongside me and invited me to shop with her at the Kroger. Nobody had requested my presence in a long time. We were both in need of company. I remember she bought a single loaf of bread, cottage cheese, and some chocolate. The fare must have been double the cost of her food. Another night, a guy having a bad trip started bouncing on the seat so hard, his head bashed the top of the cab. His girlfriend was passed out next to him, but every time he bounced, she'd wake up and shout, what, what, what? She had a pretty snub nose and was wearing sweatpants. Neither of them could tell me where they wanted to go, so I drove around in circles, mooning over the girl in sweats, until the guy came down enough to drop them at the bus station. Mostly, though, I sat in the Kroger parking lot and watched the shoppers push their carts out of the swinging doors and listened to the sound of those wobbly wheels struggling across the potholes in the pavement, and went back to reading. Then, in February, it was always February that year, just as I was about to leave for my shift, Len called from Chicago. He'd been calling a lot that winter. He liked hearing stories about the cab. He thought now that I was becoming hard-boiled, I'd have something to write about aside from being a lonely horn dog. How many horn dog stories can one person write? Lots, I said. But that night Len said he wanted to talk in person. When? Now. "'You're four hours away. It's snowing like all get-out. "'I don't have a car, and I have to work. "'You got a cab,' Len said. He'd been my boss at summer camp. He was one of those people who pop up randomly and change everything, and you can't imagine any story of your life, lame as it might be, told without them. Len was one of the first people to notice something, anything, in me. It was only a summer camp in Wisconsin, How to express the significance of the place, and of Len in particular, without sounding ridiculous? My job was to entertain rich kids from the suburbs while their parents went on vacation. But for Len, after so many years working in psychiatric wards, good training for any administrator, he'd say, camp had become a kind of gracious calling. Part hippie, part drill sergeant. His mission was to instill in us that rich kids are not— These noxious little fuckers were, at their core, human. If by the end of the summer we could make them a little more so, we'd have accomplished something. Because don't forget, these world inheritors will go forth into the universe and become CEOs and heart surgeons and white-collar criminals. Imagine, my kittens, if they were a tad more decent, a smidgen more compassionate. Imagine. Len would stand before us during staff beatings, in the push shack and exhort, his protruding stomach lording atop his skinny legs, his wild shoulder-length hair, chaotic beard, and big white teeth. All camps have their characters, and our leading man was Len. There was something of the werewolf about him, and even when he said something completely banal like, We work hard so we can play hard, I'd think, Yes, that's it. That's the key. Why hadn't I thought of that? Seize the day, Len would say. Set yourself up for success, gentlemen. He'd raise his monstrously thick eyebrows, and the whole time he'd be sucking on one of the cigars he kept in a constantly replenished stash, along with the bourbon, in the bottom drawer of a desk so strewn with the junk of summer, flippers, softballs, frisbees, confiscated candy, confiscated porn, spent cans of off, bags of charcoal, we never saw the top of it. Smoking was forbidden, except in the trees behind the rec hall, but Len's loyalty to camp was so strong that even when he was breaking the rules, and he spent his days breaking the camp's rules, it was his way of respecting, loving the institution for instituting the rules in the first place. And on days off, Len would take me and a few other carless counselors to gamble at the casino in Bad River. It was from Len that I learned how losing all the money I had could be not only a full day's entertainment, but also honorable in itself. The least you can do for a Chippewa, Len would say, is hand over a lousy 25 bucks, no? What'd they give us? Wisconsin? Minnesota? North Dakota? Illinois? Canada? I stole my own cab and drove across I-80 through the snow. Len may have been HIV positive for years before he finally became so frail he had to be hospitalized. He never told me this. I put it together later. When he called, Len always made a point to say he had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which was probably technically true, because camp was always, always on his mind. wouldn't have done to employ a man with AIDS. No distinction would have been made at that time between being HIV positive and having the disease itself. Not at a boys camp in Wisconsin in the mid-90s, no matter how much of a beloved character of an assistant director he was. For years, he'd felt the need to hide it. If only I had Hodgkins, whoever this asshole is, it's not having Hodgkins that's really fucking things up. Now it no longer mattered at least as far as camp was concerned. He was done. He'd never get back up north. The summer before the winter I drove the cab to Chicago was the first one Len had missed in eighteen years on staff. He called me to relive past summers, not the specifics because all summers were the same. That was the point of camp. You didn't go to camp because anything new ever happened. You went to camp because history repeated itself. The lake will always be too frigid in June to put the docks in the water. But how are you going to put the docks in if you don't get in the lake? And always some joker who shows up in a wetsuit will get howled right off the beach. The camp dog, not the dead one, the new one, will always bite a nurse from Scandinavia. A stoned junior counselor from Kansas City will always, always hit a tree in front of Sol Q's. And Saul Q. will always run out of his cabin in his tidy whities and squeal about how the drug culture's ruining camp, totally ruining it. And years ago, before anybody's time, there will always be a kid whose name nobody remembers who drowned off the point, pulled down by a mysterious current, having something, who knows what, to do with the camp's shady past as an illegal logging operation. The drive to Chicago took hours longer than usual because of the heavy snow and ice. By the time I pulled up to Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's, it was 3.30 in the morning, and I found Len drinking coffee and shooting the shit with a security guard in the lobby. Gone the potbelly, gone the crazy hair. The man was gaunt. What, Len said, you drive from Tashkent? He introduced me to the guard, an old man with an abnormally big head and a bushy mound of curly hair. Reminded me of Henry Kissinger. Ted, Len said, this is a grad student. A grad student? This is Ted. You ever met a grad student before Ted? Never so up close, Ted said. Though he was still wearing flimsy hospital slippers, Len had decked himself out in his old camp clothes, fleece jacket, Camouflage pants, and, slung across his now skinny shoulders, his red Duluth pack. A couple of years ago, cleaning out the basement, I found that red pack in a puddle of water. It had been lying there so long that when I knelt down to pick it up, the thing came apart in my hands. I thought I was supposed to break you out of here, I said. Ted guffawed. <laughs> he tried to give a hundred bucks to every nurse on the floor. He tried to give me a hundred bucks. I told Daddy Warbucks here he's free to come and go. He wants to be locked up, he can call the 12th District Precinct Captain. And besides, I told him, the hospital only steals direct from insurance. Or is it the insurance that steals direct from... Len slugged the dregs of his coffee and shouted at me. Lead the way. And he bolted out the door into the night. I shrugged at Ted and followed. Fat chunks of puffy snow were still thumping down. Gingerly, Len moved toward the cab, watching his step, but even in his new slowness, there was the old sense of half-baked purpose. "'Where's your boots?' I asked. "'Camp,' Len said. "'My boots are at camp, in the closet of the big house, second floor, the cedar closet.' "'You want to know something else?' "'Uh, what?' "'That guard back there?' "'Yeah. He's a Ted, but he used to be a Trish.' "'That guy?' first sex change in the history of Indiana. You don't believe me? Head like Henry Kissinger, I said. More like Kissinger's mother. Imagine. Henry Kissinger had a mother. And Ted told me he'd rather be Ted, but there are a lot of days when he still gets as sad as Trish used to get on her worst days. Wrap your brain around that master's degree. Does this hearse have heat? Barely. Keys? I wish you could hear the sound of Len's voice, which in its heyday was a combination of chuckle and growl. And he always spoke a little under his voice, as if to pull you into a common conspiracy. That night, as we crept through the snow, now Len drove like he walked, with timidity laced with determination. Up and down the unplowed streets, his voice so hoarse, there were times I couldn't hear what he was saying. We drove through dawn before ending up at the White Castle on West Madison, where we must have had at least 30 of those little square burgers between us for breakfast. Then Len drove himself back to Rush. He died a month later. I took the bus back to Chicago for the funeral. I'd been fired from Iowa City Yellow Cab. When I brought the cab back to the garage the day after that last night with Len, Ovid Demeneris said I was lucky he wasn't pressing my balls and charges. I gave him 200 of the $300 Len had stuffed into my shirt pocket, which satisfied Ovid because it was equal to the amount of cash I might have grossed that night had I been on the job, a figure I couldn't have grossed in two weeks of dreams, plus the wear and tear on the car because, Ovid said, based on the mileage, I'd driven to hell and gone. Len would have thought the funeral a complete hoot. It was a full-on camp reunion. He was 51. As much as Len talked, and at camp he talked, and talked, and talked, I always thought that at root, beneath the ceaseless cascade of stories, exhortations, bullshit, sayings, advice, encouragement, teasings, there was a silence. He rarely got personal, and when he did, it had more to do with something he wanted us to understand than something he wanted to tell us about himself. Len's sister, his only sibling, had been killed by a drunk driver. He often mentioned her, ineffectually, to scare us off driving wasted on northern Wisconsin's deer infested back roads. He'd tell us about his father, a born again Christian and successful trial lawyer who'd once argued, and lost, an abortion case before the United States Supreme Court. But this was only so Len could say that he, not the loss of an Epic case, had the distinction of being the greatest failure in his father's life. And we knew that in the off-season he worked in various psych wards and hospitals across the Midwest. He said the secret of his longevity in the loony business was that the nuttier he acted, the more the inmates trusted him. They knew it was an act. A lot of their act, Len said, is an act. But they appreciated his effort to meet them halfway. Nobody else ever much tried. At Hennepin County in Minneapolis, he'd been named an honorary schizophrenic in a solemn ceremony. The entire ward chipped in for a plaque, We sisters and brothers of Lissa hereby proclaim Leonard Cahill officially devoid of sanity. Sincerely yours, Dr. Mengel. Though he had only been in Chicago for a few years, he'd moved there for treatment he'd stopped working in the off-season to save his energy for camp, Len seemed to know every side street on the northwest side. As we slunk along through the snow in that muffled silence, I don't think that Len, sensing the end, was fulfilling any sudden need to unburden himself. That wasn't why I'd been summoned. He knew unburdening wasn't possible. He knew that certain things we carry to the grave, or, in Len's case, the crematorium, It was more, I believe, about his own voice, hoarse and unrecognizable as it was. Sometimes in order to hear your own voice, you need someone else present, even if that person isn't necessarily awake. And I confess, tired out from the drive from Iowa, I spent a lot of that sacred night in and out of consciousness. And so somehow I graduated from Lawrence College in Appleton, Wisconsin in June of what? 1970? 1971? With a degree in, you guessed it, psychology. Appleton. You you know Houdini grew up there, right? His greatest escape was getting the Dodge out of Appleton, Wisconsin. Anyway, I start hitchhiking. I've got some vague notion of reaching New York City, I've got about as much clue what I'm going to do in Manhattan as a porcupine in a car wash. One of my rides takes me off course, and I end up in Northampton, Massachusetts, at this point without a dollar. One of those stories that used to even be true. There was a time when you could be a person in this country without a single dollar. And I start snooping around for some work. I hear they're hiring at Northampton State Hospital. I didn't even know what state hospital meant. I'm a kid from Minnetonka. Jesus fanatics for parents. What do I know about state hospitals? I think it's a hospital hospital. I get myself hired as a night attendant for four and a half dollars an hour. At first, it was pure drudgery, cuckoo nest sort of stuff, bedpans and force-feeding, doling out meds like gumballs. They taught me how to restrain people with restraints and how to do it without restraints. Believe me, you have a choice use the restraints. But the long and short is, I had an aptitude. I put people at ease. I almost said east. Be a nice thing to put people at east. I I told nun jokes, Pollock jokes, rabbi jokes, Irish jokes, homo jokes. Boy, did they love the homo jokes on the ward. Chinese jokes. Rented an apartment in town and worked six nights a week at Northampton. I learned the regulations concerning shoelaces and nail clippers. I learned the drugs, the zines, perfenazine, flufenazine, chloropromazine, otherwise known as thorazine, the miracle drug. And yeah, like some kind of bleeding heart rookie, I thought to myself, these drugs never seem to take away the anguish in the eyes of these people. You hearing me? Not anguish exactly. It was a kind of exhaustion that was beyond being physically tired. That's what it seemed to me then, an exhaustion that sleep could never chase away. And it would have been easier to take if they'd moaned out loud, but they didn't. They only do that in movies. These people on the ward at Northampton were quiet. God, it would have been better if they moaned and cradled themselves and sobbed. The only time I ever saw that was when a relative visited. Then they turned up the volume on the batshit. Then they really amped up the bonkers. Hey, nudging me. Hey, you even awake? Huh? I'm asking you. You hearing this? Uh, sure, Len. The loons were exhausted. I get it. Anyway, two weeks in, a couple of state troopers from Springfield bring in a kid. Wild kid. Flailing, kicking, calling the cops cunts and murderers. And I'm excited. I haven't really had a real live one yet. Me and another attendant get him in a jacket, stuff a pill down his throat lock him in the padded intake room. The troopers give him a few licks on their way out, but that's it. Eventually, the kid calms down, and after that, he sleeps maybe 14, 15 hours. But the following night, during my shift, he starts up again. And again, we've got to restrain him. A doc on duty gives him a shot, and soon he's right as rain, docile as a baby. It was only then I got a decent look at him. And I'm telling you, the kid was angelic. He had this golden hair. What do you call it? Flaxen? Is golden hair the same as flaxen? Writer, Hello? Anyway, my first thought was, and it would have made my late mother proud, Jesus Christ. The Redeemer's what, a thousand years late, but he's finally on the scene. You think I'm kidding? Later on in my storied career, I met a lot of Christs. They haunt the wards. A new guy, and I met some women Christ, too creeps up and starts blessing you and all that, and you know, he cometh again, she cometh again, but this one, this boy, he only looked the part. All he wanted to do was kick you in the balls, but wasn't Satan the best-looking angel? My God, one look at that kid, and I was gone. Since the year Len died, 1997, I've been carrying around from rented apartment to rented apartment a manila folder filled with notes. The folder itself has begun to disintegrate and will soon go the way of Len's backpack. For longer than the eighteen years that he worked at camp, I've been deluding myself that I'm going to make a novel out of Len, the novel I've long been contracted to write for a publisher that alternates between forgetting I exist and sending me threatening emails demanding the return of a long-since-spent, tiny, advance. He was, as I've said, only my boss at summer camp, and yet I remain a disciple. My book would celebrate and spread the gospel far and wide of Len's irreverent humanism and induce people to run to the nearest casino with no intention or even desire of winning any money, because I loved the man. The want wasn't entirely delusional. I wanted people who never knew Len to remember him. Does that make any sense? Broke the lock on the cabinet in the nurse's station and read his file and find out he's been busted for, among other things, jerking off on a city bus in Springfield, Massachusetts, and then wiping his syruped hand on a cop's blue shoulder. Only 22 and already pages of arrests including two for heroin possession, another five or six for weed, bad checks, assault, and some more lewd and indecent behavior, which, in my opinion, should always be in the eye of the beholder. Theft, liquor, a watch, more liquor. Also, there was a non-expunged juvenile record. And I'm telling you, I'm reading this stuff like it's biblical, this list of transgressions. He's been rendered what they call incorrigible, There was chronic truancy, apparent record-breaking, vandalism, breaking and entering, more assaults, including one with a deadly weapon, another theft, a bike, a stereo. But in the winter of 1971, the kid gets a kind of a reprieve, or at least it's not exactly jail time as he's known it before. The judge accepts his court-appointed lawyers hail Mary that his client might well be a lunatic. And so he sends Dominic. His name was Dominic to Northampton State for a minimum four-month observation period, extendable, unlimited, upon a doctor's. There's a line of William James's I came across years ago. I've never been able to find it again, but the gist of it, I think, is if you tried to take into account all of the heartbreak behind the lighted windows of a single city on a single night, your head would explode, clean off your neck. Even if I've muddled the line beyond recognition, which I'm sure is the case, you get the point. I think of it every time I remember that night in the cab with Len. And in Chicago, even at four in the morning, there are more lighted windows than you could possibly imagine. Nights I'd watch him sleep. He'd finally begin to calm down a little, and we were able to move him from the intake room with its strappable bed to the dorm. And look, I wasn't the only one gaga over Dominic. The whole place, the other patients, the nurses, even the doctors. Everybody was doing him favors. Some people just have that magnetic force, you know. You can't help it. You just get reeled into them. The lights were always on in the dorms, but they were dimmed at night per the rules. I go over to his bed. I just want to touch his cheek while he sleeps, and I do it. And he grabs my wrist so hard... I think he's going to pull it off my hand. And then Dom slowly, almost gently, but still with that iron grip, guides my hand down beneath the sheets. I'm watching a spot on the wall where there used to be one of Dorothea's beautiful windows. And I'm telling you, I don't even know what I'm telling you, because you go from zero to 60, from wanting to touch somebody's cheek to the whole enchilada, things get enchilada. Would you like me to be crass What about your virginal heterosexual ears? Who's Dorothea? Dorothea Dix, the great reformer. She wanted asylums to be asylums, an oasis, a tranquil idol where the disturbed of mind could listen to the birds. Years ago, in my zeal to prove to myself that I was working diligently on my Len novel, I did some research on Dorothea Dix in the basement of the Boston Public Library. This is what novelists do. They swim through libraries, pore over old texts, look busy. My scattered pre-internet notes are in the manila folder. She was a woman, I noted, of great accomplishment and incessant activity. One of her assistants called Dorothea, a short woman, incapable of whispering. When Dorothea confessed her sins in church, you could hear her two towns over. Of the site at Northampton where she hoped the State would build an asylum, Dix recorded this exhortation in her diary. It is without a doubt the single most beautiful pitch of land in the Commonwealth. It is not a question if I shall have it, only when. Dix believed that asylums should be at higher elevations in order to provide patients with the cleanest possible air and serenest possible views. Hence, she ordered the architect of Northampton State to ensure that from every upper story window it would be possible to see either Mount Tom or the Connecticut River Valley. After the asylum opened in 1858, an orchestra played at every meal from the upper balcony of the dining hall, and the tables were laid with white linen and silver. Gorgeous flaxum hoodlum, but no dummy. You don't build up a file that needs rubber bands if you're a dummy. No, he had a certain genius, Dom did. Moments of tenderness? absa fuckin' lootly. There were lightning-fast kisses nobody would have seen if they'd been looking. And most didn't look, didn't care. On the ward, like everywhere, people have their own problems. Let the hippie orderly stop by Dom's bed every night. What's it to us? And we were surrounded by people. We were also alone, dead alone, in the middle of that dorm. One night, Dom pried open the light box and cut all the lights on the ward, and that allowed us a few minutes. And holy cow, you sleeping motherfuck! I'm awake, I said. I'm awake. He's using you. Len, can't you even see? Len stops the cab. I've got no idea where we were. Somewhere off Milwaukee Avenue. It's getting a little light the snows led up. There's that after-snow stillness. Only snow can truly quiet Chicago. Every block becomes unrecognizably beautiful. It's been called a somber city. The only time I've felt this to be true is after snow. More and more lights are coming on in the apartments, Len's staring at me in a way that makes me remember my first summer on staff. Two weeks in, Len had summoned me into the shack for what he called shits and giggles. He handed over the bottle, and I took a healthy swig of bourbon. He watched me swallow, and then looked me over. It might have gone on for three or four minutes, just Len studying my face. I went on drinking the free hooch. "'How's Kevin Friedlander doing?' Len asked me. "'The kid wets the bed. What else?' He's from Shaker Heights? No, uh, Bloomfield Hills. Even a dipshit not paying attention would know that Kevin Friedlander only likes ping-pong, that he hardly eats any lunch, and that he flunked archery. How do you flunk archery? And that his mother... Len paused. He dug his hand around in his hair as if he were searching for something alive in there. You ready to hear this? Sure. His mother fell down the stairs, hit her head, few too many. In the off-season, the kid was the only one home. Poor woman hemorrhaged to death in Kevin's arms. A month later, Parents Weekend, I met Kevin Friedlander's mom, and she was alive and intact. But to this day, she died drunk in Kevin's arms, which explained not only why he wet the bed, but also why he flunked archery. It's from Len that I picked up the habit of taking one look at someone and trying to imagine the worst thing that's ever happened to them. In the cab, Len's old voice breaks through and he howls, Of course I know he's using me to get the hell out of there. Why do you think I'm pinching pennies? And yes, stealing from the other patients, Stealing. Oh, hallelujah, did I steal from those inmates? And soon I bought a little Plymouth. And when the night came, Len stops himself short. It's like I'm telling someone else's life. You ever feel that way? On a good day. I'm history, Len says, and here I am telling someone else's. Time went by, lots of time, and I made excuses. Every couple of years, I'd take out the manila folder and give it another try. Eventually, though, I lacked the patience, the persistence, the talent, the ambition, the everything. I convinced myself that Len simply couldn't be contained by a novel. Novels by nature end, and Len doesn't end. Ah, but it occurred to me only just the other day. What about a story? The whole time it's been stories. Stories about everything and everybody while saving Len for the whole enchilada waiting for me beneath the sheets. All hail Chekhov. If done right, he tells us, a story never ends. A story lurks. A story, a good story, is just out of reach, always. Wake up in an unfamiliar darkness in a room you don't seem to recognize. Flip on the light. Nothing there. It's your room again. But didn't you feel a presence in the dark? The presence of someone you once knew, someone you once loved? All these years I've been deluding myself, carrying around this folder as if one day it would grow covers and a binding. So simple. Lends a story. Dear Little Brown and Company, You say stories don't sell, and God knows I have no reason to doubt you. I've seen the numbers on my story collections, and they aren't pretty. I know I'm basically a charity case. But don't you see? It's what Chekhov teaches— the last period of the last sentence of a story isn't a full stop. It's a horizon. It's not about word count or pages. That's a smothered way of thinking. We're talking about the quest for infinity here. Horizons can't ever be reached, no matter how many words you lard on a novel. The attempt at closure is inherently dishonest. But a story, one that ends but doesn't end. That's infinity, immortality right there. And listen, my old buddy Len was this totally amazing, inspiring guy. You should have seen him on Hatfield and McCoy Day, dressed as Charles Manson, dressed up like Will Rogers. He's dead, but not dead, see? He lives, he's still talking, and the only way... And okay, it wasn't even necessary... But I dressed up Dom in an orderly's uniform, light blue scrubs, and we jumped out a first floor window. I'd cut a hole in the fence, jumped in the car like Bonnie and Clyde, Bernie and Clyde, drove straight to the New York border in the corner of Massachusetts, and then just kept going until we ran out of gas near Utica, some motel. First thing Dom did was dig his face in the carpet like he'd never seen carpet before. And we both couldn't stop laughing. And I know I said to myself that if I never see the kid again after today, but even at that moment, I knew I was full of shit. And so I said, Dom, let's travel, you and me, Italy. Dom shouted, the motherland. And I said, we'll do it. I'll find the dough, Italy, the motherland. Is it Sicily, Dom? Is that where your people? And Dom turned over on his side and said, my people? And I said, yeah, your people. Isn't Sicily where? and I've never been able to figure out what set him off, but he stood up and walked right out the door of the room. It wasn't like I hadn't known it was going to happen soon enough, but I wasn't ready. I just wasn't. Anyway, he just starts walking across the motel parking lot and down the highway, and I'm standing in the doorway watching. A few years ago, I was in Fall River, Massachusetts for the funeral of an aunt. After we buried Aunt Josephine, who'd been old for so long everybody thought she'd already died, I drove my rented car clear across the state to Northampton. More notes for my Manila folder. And there it was, on a hill above Smith College. They'd closed the asylum for good in 1986. I have no idea what I was hoping to gain by looking at a few old brick buildings through a chain-link fence. I desperately wanted the place to mean something. It was, though, a beautiful spot amid the tall trees and Mount Tom and the Connecticut River Valley in the background. Dorothea Dix was no dope. Maybe she figured she'd ride out her influence as long as she had it. She had to have known even then that nobody, not even the richest patrons, was going to pay for an orchestra to play for a horde of psychotics indefinitely. On an otherwise empty page, I wrote, Three Adirondack Chairs, One Broken. Or maybe the failure of my manila folder, besides patience, talent, etc., etc., has nothing to do with form, long, short, or in between. Maybe it's just a true love story, and like all such stories, it will always mean less to the person listening more or less listening, than it does to the teller. How could it not? Forgive me, Len. How to say this? As I think back on us creeping along those newly blanketed Chicago streets in the cab, I can't help but remember something an old girlfriend used to say to me. No, it wasn't an old girlfriend. It was my ex-wife. It was my ex-wife who used to say it. She'd say that what I sought, what I ached for, what I breathed for was true love, except she pronounced it twoo, like Elmer Fudd would say it. Twoo love. She said I was pie in the sky, that my search would never amount to anything, because the only twoo love that would ever mean anything to me was, by nature, unrequited. I wanted to pine, not love. Twoo love, my ex-wife said, isn't love at all. "'And you know what else?' she said. "'What?' "'It's boring as shit.' "'What about Chekhov?' I shouted. "'Chekhov died in love,' my ex-wife said, "'and loved. "'Olga Nipper loved him back. "'It was fucking mutual. "'Nothing true about it. "'But his stories, his stories. "'He wasn't celebrating unrequited love. "'He was practically begging his characters "'and his dopey readers "'to see the stupidity,' To understand that their own failure to love was because they loved nobody but themselves how can you read and read and still not have any idea what he's saying but i thought fuck it and i ran after him down the highway and when i reached him i said dumb and when he didn't answer i tackled his ass and we were rolling around in the cold dead grass by the side of the road whether it was day or night by that point i no longer remember All I know is that I started to punch him, and he laughed. Not like the way he'd laughed on the carpet. A laugh like, not only didn't he give a shit now, he'd never give a shit ever. And so I punched harder. Hello? Hello, you present, accounted for? Hmm? This is the climax, cabbie. All right, Len, right. Or maybe it's even more basic. Len's life beyond camp. Aside from this one story and a few stray details, I know very little about it. I never asked. I'm not entirely to blame for this because, in camp theology, one simply doesn't exist outside of camp. Since Len was a high priest, it makes a certain amount of sense that the rest of his life would be inaccessible to my imagination—a form of sacrilege to try to conjure him beyond the big house the little house, the lake, the tennis courts, the point, the upper diamond, the sand dunes, the casino and bad river. What we call the off-season is a netherworld you endured in a kind of fog in order to make it back to June, July and August. June, July, August. That's our calendar. Even if you no longer make it up, even if you haven't set foot on camps, grounds in years, The calendar remains June, July, August. Because you believe, will always believe, that the time will come when you will return to slide back into history repeating itself as if you had never left, and a stoned JC from Kansas City is about to hand you a joint. So why the cab ride in the snow? Because he knew he'd been expelled, for good, from June, July, and August. And he needed to speak, to somebody, didn't matter that it was me, he just needed to speak to somebody, anybody from June, July, and August. If only the ride had been longer, maybe I'd know more about all the heartache, the decades of heartache that must have followed Dominic, who, in the end, probably didn't mean all that much compared with the others Len met later, those friends and lovers who, like Len himself, died too young. Dominic was only the story he chose to tell me that night. Who's the sucker now? But he still laughed, and so I started to beat the shit out of him. I was a little bigger than Dom to begin with, but I'm sure he could have killed me if he wanted to. But he only laughed, bloody teeth laughing, and I just kept hitting, pummeling that face, kissing it, that Christ face. And I can't tell you how satisfying it was to pummel. A man is walking down the middle of the street which is what you do in Chicago when the sidewalks are buried by a blizzard, one set of footprints through the untouched snow. We follow slowly behind for a while, as if the man is now the one leading us somewhere, anywhere. At some point, the man stops. Len pulls up beside him and rolls down the window. The man is outlined by snow. He's like a walking chalk drawing, no hat ledges of snow over his eyebrows he's wearing only a thin tweed jacket with the flaps of his collar up you a cab the man says what's it look like says Iowa is Iowa not a state in the union with full faith and credit the guy gets into the back of the cab Len leans over me and flips on the meter you're out late he says or early which is it late or early the man shrugs and snow cascades from his shoulders. Some nut job from Iowa wants to give him a ride. What's it to him?
2: Hi, this is Peter Warner, And uh, you just heard um, an ineffectual tribute to Len read by um, Chad Fisk. Uh, I want to thank uh, Chad for his amazing work and uh, as well as uh, stories on stage, Evan and Jerry and the whole crew. Um, It's great to be back um, with stories on stage and uh, even in this strange times and in this strange way um, I feel close to you all. Um, So thanks for having me back and uh, thanks for choosing the story. Um, An ineffectual tribute to Len uh, appears in my most recent book, um, Maggie Brown and others, which came out in uh, 2019. What I can say about the story is that, um, I, I can very distinctly remember starting it and it was in 1999. And, uh, I think I even mentioned this in the story, but for years and years, I carried around this battered manila, um, folder with notes for the story. And uh, it wasn't until uh, 2019 that I finished it, pretty much right before the book was coming out. And what I can say is that um, what helped me finish it was that I finally came upon a title, an ineffectual tribute. And I think what that allowed me to do was get over what my problem had been. And the problem had been that I was trying in this story uh, to bring back an old friend and to do him justice. And I guess by recognizing that that was impossible and that I could only make an ineffectual tribute, I was able to finish what I'd only consider an attempt. You know, I think all stories in some ways are attempts at something. Uh, and I think by acknowledging that I couldn't actually do what I really wanted to do, I was able to finish the attempt. Thank you all, and I hope to be with you in person um, again
0: one of these days. You've just heard Ineffectual Tribute to Len by Peter Orner, read by Chad Fiske. If you've enjoyed listening, consider sharing this episode with a friend. And if you really enjoyed it, please consider making a donation on our website to help us keep sharing stories like these. The Stories on Stage Davis podcast is a sponsored project of YOLO Arts, a nonprofit arts organization, and supported in part by a grant from the City of Davis Arts and Cultural Affairs Program. Find upcoming episodes, view our archive of past episodes, and help support our series at storiesonstagedavis.com.